Welcome to episode number 550 of Just Code Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm Justin Gordon, your host, and in this episode, we have Avi Flambaum, who is the co-founder of Flatiron School, which launched in 2012 as an alternative to an education industry, leaving a wide skills gap in the booming tech world. It launched as an accelerated programming school and inspired this whole coding bootcamp industry, which is so big now. And in 2017, they actually joined WeWork to further their mission of enabling the pursuit of a better life through education. This was an interview that I was so excited to do because I am so passionate about education myself as well. And Avi goes through how they actually launched and end up growing this business, the partnership with WeWork, all of that in this episode. Just really excited for everyone to listen to this episode. I think you'll get a lot out of it. And Avi was gracious enough to offer his time up for this and just so excited to have you guys listen to it. As always, the show notes are at justgrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show over on iTunes, subscribe there, leave a rating and review. We're also on SoundCloud and Stitcher and all these different platforms. So go check it out. You can find the show notes at justgogrind.com slash podcast. All the things from every episode are on there. So go there as well. And without further ado, here is Avi Flambaum from Flatiron School. Avi, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah, we have you on. And there's so much to talk about with Flatiron School. But for those who maybe don't know what it is, could you just give them a brief overview of what Flatiron School is? Sure. Flatiron School teaches people digital skills like software engineering, data science, UI, UX, and then we help get them jobs in those skills. Yeah. And you obviously have a long background in coding. Like, Where did you even start with this? My mom was a teacher at my elementary school and she would uh, tutor kids after school and I'd have to just uh, you know, wait for her. And uh, the school had one computer, you know, it was like a DOS computer and uh, there's this game Nibbles where you're like a snake and you eat these bricks and you get longer and you just can't crash into yourself. And uh, I'd play that game a lot and it got uh, to the point where it was really easy, like, you know, it's a similar pattern. And the source code was written in basic and I opened it up and, uh, you know, you have these variables like speed equals 10 and I just kind of changed it to speed equals, you know, 100 and something would be faster. And I started kind of hacking on that source code and uh, that was kind of my first experience, I guess, programming, but I always liked computers. And then a couple of years later, the internet came out and I thought it was going to be a big deal. So I really wanted to kind of learn how it all worked and started teaching myself HTML. Just was always really interested in it. And then as I got older, I started working more. I had my first job at a startup when I was 16. Then I worked for a hedge fund right before college for a little bit. And then when I was in college, I did some contract work for that hedge fund and then they ended up offering me a job. So I dropped out and uh, started programming for them. That's insane. 16 years old? How did that work with school? Oh, so my parents wanted to send me to like an SAT summer camp, like a two-week program or something. And I did not want to do that. So I told them I was going to get a job. And of course, they were like, you know, no one gives a 16-year-old a job. So they kind of threw down this gauntlet and they were like, you know, if you don't have a job by July 1st, or go into this program. So I went on the New York Times and I looked at like the want ads and I kind of circled everything that had the word computer in it. And I made a resume and mentioned the languages I knew and, you know, this one website I had built for my community center. And I had to apply for jobs and I'd go into these interviews and, you know, people thought I was really cute. And uh, then they'd be <laughs> like, this is a real job. Sorry, we can't hire you. And then I went to this uh, startup called cityfeed.com. And they also kind of first kind of chuckled 
But then they were like, hey, can you actually code? And I was like, yeah, look, I'll build you something right now. <laughs> and I built them with a form validation for their contact form. And they're like, all right, you know, we'll pay you 10 bucks an hour. So I, you know, my mom came in to work with me the next day because she didn't believe me. And uh, <laughs> sort of walked in, who hired my son? And uh, I worked there all summer. And, just, you know, throughout then after that, throughout high school, whenever I had time, like after school, I would just go in into the office and clock in hours. That's incredible. And I'm curious as to, with programming, like what was it? about that that like drew you in and kept you engaged obviously with that yeah i guess it was probably a, a few things i mean one was i was very aware that that was how the world worked and it was kind of fun understanding how everything worked and being able to manipulate it and no one else could so like you know being able to build websites or make free phone calls or just kind of like networking and looking at other people's hard drives on the school's network you know, you just kind of understand it. And like, you know, the extent in which even today, like, I think there's like a digital divide, you know, back then, like 1998, 2000, there was even, you know, a wider divide. So if you really understood how these things work and could manipulate them, that kind of gave you superpower. And then the other thing I really liked about it was I could build stuff. So I could like, you know, put up a website, I always wanted to kind of be a writer, and I could never get a story into my high school's literary magazine. So I just made my own website, you know, like before the blog era. So before WordPress, before Blogger, so I had to build my own like CMS with the database and I had like a registration feature so people could actually join it and leave comments on my stories and I kind of formed this community. I took applications for my prom date on my website. Um, and my readers were to take the prom. So I liked kind of being able to publish stuff and create things myself. And then I guess in the back of my mind, I always thought that the very least, I would always be able to have a job. Like I didn't really know what I was going to do professionally and I was like a pretty poor student and didn't have like, high hopes of getting a job as a banker or a doctor or anything like that. So I figured, you know, the better I'm at programming, it's like kind of like a backstop. If, uh, you know, I never become a writer, I'll always be able to make money coding. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And it's funny because I actually, way back in the day as well, did like really basic coding with like HTML, CSS, and it's just being able to build something and then seeing it like on the screen and people can interact with it was like the most amazing feeling. Uh, so I can definitely, uh, yeah, I understand that type of feeling. What I want to know though, with Flatiron School then, how did that come about? Yeah, so when I left my uh, first startup, I was there for like four years. And I left that and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. You know, my friend Mike started Skillshare, which at that point was a marketplace for in-person classes and kind of called me and was like, look, you're not doing anything. Can you teach programming classes? And I, I remember I told him, I was like, I don't think anyone's going to come to my programming classes. I even said, like, why would anyone pay to learn to code? Like, they could just teach themselves. And he said that not everyone could do that. And I guess I kind of sort of took it for granted that like you could teach yourself things because I'd kind of developed that skill because the things I wanted to know in life, no one wanted to teach me. So I kind of had to learn how to teach myself them. And I started teaching these programming classes and I realized that being able to teach yourself something isn't doesn't make you better or more competent at it. It's just a different way that you kind of approach learning. And it occurred to me that there are basically only two ways to get the kinds of skills I have. One is do what I did, teach yourself, bang your head against the wall for a bunch of years, or get a CS degree. And I felt like these skills are too important to only have those two paths. And I really wanted to create a sort of another way for people to acquire these kinds of skills, because I think they all new jobs are going to require a degree of technical fluency that I think the world is not prepared for. So I really wanted to create another way for people to learn these kinds of things that didn't require a four-year degree or like pre-calc requirements. And that's really what I think Flatiron School is. It's really a way. It's a path. It's a direction. Yeah. And with that, I'm curious as to who that initial team was then. At Flatiron? So one of my uh, students was 
now my co-founder. He was a venture capitalist and he took my class and thought it was really good and tweeted at me to, if I wanted to get coffee and sort of started asking me questions about like how long I've been doing this and why do I do it? And I told him that my favorite thing about teaching is that in every class, there's always like two or three students that are really trying to change their lives. And that what I would always do is take on contract work and I would subcontract it to these students and mentor them through the project and then introduce them to the client that hired me and get them a job. And then I've been doing that for like seven months and I got a dozen people jobs that way. And he was like, wait, so you're doing this on the side just to get people jobs. And I was like, yeah. He's like, why don't you just do that? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, why don't you just start a school that gets people jobs? And I was like, I don't know if you can do that. And he's like, let's try it. So we started the school. For the first six months, he was actually still working at the VC fund. It was just me and the students. He would kind of come in and help us out and make coffee. And, and then as it kind of grew, he eventually quit the VC fund and joined me full time. Uh, that's how it happened. Yeah. And with Flatiron School, like, what was it initially in terms of like how many people you're working with and where you're working out of and what you kind of had the vision for it initially? Oh, man. So I was like, Adam said that he wanted to start a school and uh, I thought about it. And I wrote out this big like plan that I sent him at like six in the morning. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he responded. He was kind of like, okay, a lot of cool things here. Let's get together and we should probably like write a business plan. And I was like, nah. I wrote a business plan in my last startup and it was useless. Like nothing <laughs> turned out that way. We wasted so much time. I definitely know we're going to need desks. So if you want to start a school with me, let's go to Ikea and let's buy some desks. <laughs> we got in a zip car at like 11 o'clock in you know, New York and we drove out to Brooklyn and went to Ikea and bought a bunch of desks. And then there were all these desks in my apartment. And I was like, look, we got to get these desks out of my apartment. We need like a campus. And I was like super nervous about signing a lease because when you sign like a commercial lease, you know, you're basically personally liable for three years. And I didn't know if this was going to work. Like this was like kind of a, a really new concept. Like that summer when we were planning this, I actually met Sharif from Dev Bootcamp and uh, they, he was basically one guy in his apartment with eight people kind of experimenting with Dev Bootcamp. And I met Jeff Kazmir, who was in DC doing something called Hungry Academy and Living Social. And me, Jeff and Sharif started talking a lot about this model kind of these like high intensity vocational training programs. And uh, we all started at the same time, basically, and we were the first boot camps. So I just didn't know if it was going to work and I didn't want to sign a three-year lease. So I called my commercial real estate broker from my last startup and I asked him if he could find me a really sketchy landlord that would take six months cash instead of a lease. And he found me this class C building, which uh, is like a pretty low grade building in New York. It didn't even have a lock outside. It just had like a guy who sat in the lobby to make sure no one came in. And it was like this 2,000 square foot, like one bathroom, really just room. And that was our uh, first campus. And it was just me at first, you know, and just, we put up a website, got like 120 applicants, admitted 20 people. They came in on day one and I just kind of made it up as I went along. Like it was, um, you know, kind of, I had a bunch of curriculum written already from when I was teaching, but not enough to cover 12 weeks, nine hours a day. And uh, we just kind of iterated on it and uh, I would just see what worked every day and write things down. And next semester, I did a little better. And then we hired another instructor. And then we hired Rebecca to do our career services. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how we built it. Yeah. And I'm curious, too, with the initial vision and everything with it, like, how were you finding students? You said you had 120 applicants. Where did they even come from? How are you getting the word out about it? Yeah. So, you know, I'd been teaching ready for like seven months. So I had a pretty big email list from that. I also run a, probably I was already running it for like four or five years, NYC on Rails, which was one of the big Ruby on Rails. I mean, I think actually the biggest Ruby on Rails meetup in the world, if not definitely New York. So I had that meetup that I ran, you know, we'd have two meetups a month 
And I just, you know, kind of like I've been in New York my whole life. Like I had a pretty good network. So I really just kind of pounded the pavement and emailed everyone I knew, told them I'm doing this school if you want to be a programmer, you know. Like I went to my old students from when I was teaching on Skillshare and really like even like handpicked a bunch and like convinced them to quit their job, come to this school, you take them on long walks. And that's basically what we did. That's crazy. And I'm curious too, what was that initial like business model? And just in terms of, was it like a flat fee up front? Because obviously now the income share agreements have been such a big thing for all these different boot camps. Like what was the initial like business model? Yeah. Um, as I said, I was really worried it wasn't going to work. So for the first semester, our tuition was $5,000 and that was the business model. <laughs> that was um, it. People were going to pay us $5,000. It'll be 20 students. That's a hundred grand. We're off for the races. <laughs> <laughs> and that is incredible. How did you even pick that though? I'm curious. How did I pick five grand? Uh, I like the round number 20 times five, hundred thousand. I can barely count. So you know, <laughs> I can manage it as long as I'm like base 10. Yeah, that's it. That's true. And then uh, I think the next semester we raised it's like 10 grand because it worked. Like uh, after they graduated, I spent a month in between semesters, like getting everyone interviews and calling in every favor I could to get my students, my graduates in the first semester interviews. And then they all got jobs by the time the second semester started. So that's incredible. And tell me through like the growth then from that first group, like how did you approach growing? Was it just kind of an organic, like reach out to more people? They spread the word. How did that happen? Yep. It was basically that. In the beginning, it was really small volume. So, you know, you're looking for 20 students, you're looking for 150 applicants, something like that, to fill a class. And we really just referrals, friends of friends, like employers, like what's, I mean, yeah, it was just really just uh, as kind of the school grew in New York, like people heard about it and that was kind of it. Yeah. And when did it really, I guess, take off more for you guys? I don't know. I guess like the two things that come to mind is so after nine months, we started getting like all these inbound requests from venture capitalists and raise money. We moved into a bigger campus. We started an iOS program. We partnered with the city of New York to do programs for uh, low-income New Yorkers that were free for them. So that was kind of one. We were suddenly like we were running like three or four classes at once. There was, you know, 80 students, 90 students. And then around a year and a half or two years later, this is probably like two and a half or three years into the company, I'd started building an LMS internally to help manage our education, our curriculum, you know, student progress. And it had gotten to a point where it was pretty so developed that I thought that people would be able to do our curriculum online. And, you know, if they finished it, they'd be able to get a job. So one summer, I invited, I think, 500 people to take our online course for free. And they could join this the LMS. And uh, I provided zero support. So it was just them answering each other's questions, but all my curriculum. And I said, if someone could finish this and get a job, we can commercialize this. So then the whole company was basically just waiting and we were just monitoring these students, you know, and a lot of them, they had no skin in the game. So a lot of them just dropped out and stopped, you know, trying. But there was this one student, we called him the man on the moon, Garrett, who was in Atlanta. He was a musician and he was flying through the course. And after three months, he finished all the curriculum. And then a month later, he emailed me that he got a job. Then a month later, we were charging people online to join this and we put teachers behind it and study groups and chat support and things like that. So when we went, went online, that's when you know we started seeing a lot of growth. Yeah. And you said teachers, you brought teachers in and study groups. Like, What were some of those key components that supported the students to give them the best chance at success afterwards? Yes. I mean, I think you know, online education is something I think that, that has uh, been under-delivered and uh, as much as information is free online, like between Coursera and edX, you know, people are still struggling to complete those courses and get outcomes. And uh, what we really wanted to do was build a platform that was 
really social where you could ask each other questions, where you could work on projects together, where you could kind of just like in college or from what I heard about college, uh, <laughs> like if you're struggling something like schedule a study group and, you know, other people will see that, that, that the students has a study group coming up and they could join it and they would be able to like have video chats and discuss topics. You know, those are the kind of, I think, mechanics that made our LMS like really different, that it really provided a social experience for learning so that in the same way that when you walk around our campus, it's hard to know who the teacher or who the student is. It's just a bunch of people walking around and like sitting with each other or learning. And online, it's the same kind of thing. You ask a question and the question goes to basically everyone on the platform and says, you know, Avi asked a question about this lesson. And then other people can jump in and help and teachers can also jump in and help. But, you know, it's not exactly transparent who this teacher or who the student is. And I think that encourages is kind of this really vibrant learning community. Yeah. And you obviously have the online component and you mentioned the campus. How did the campus evolve and grow over time then? Yeah. I mean, the campus is mostly the same uh, as it was when we first started it, even in that crappy 2000 square foot room. I remember I always wanted, and my favorite year of school was kindergarten because you walked in and it was just this room with toys and carpets and you could sit down and play. And it was like fun, you know, then you start going to like traditional school and now suddenly you're in these buildings with these like hallways and it looks like kind of like some cross between a jail and a hospital. And you go into these classrooms with like white linoleum desks and it's like so sterile. And like, I wanted our campus to feel like a kindergarten for adults. Like I wanted it to be like vibrant and have energy and like colors. And like you walk in the campus and like there's always like soldering iron and an Arduino and a whole bunch of like giant TVs on desks that people are into writing code and projectors everywhere or people practicing like presentations and you know it should look like fun it should feel like learning there should be an energy to it and uh you know for the most part our campuses are still the same they're still like that even as we've opened up i think nine in the last year and we works they're still very much like a collaborative learning environment right and you mentioned we work how did that partnership come about with we work we were at a dinner party and we met adam newman the founder of we work and talking to him about community and uh, the world and he got pretty interested and wanted to come down and see campus. And he came down to our campus and I was going to give him a tour. And he, you know, was like, stop. And then he started walking up to people and be like, what are you doing here? And someone would say like, well, I was an accountant and I really hated my job. And I, you know, I started like playing with code and I fell in love with it and I wanted to change my life. And, you know, I want to do something I love and that's why I'm here. And he just walked up, what are you doing here? The person be like, I work here. Why do you work here? Well, I was a student and they changed my life. And then I worked for as a programmer for two years and I wanted to come back and, you know, help change other people's lives. And he got like, just did that for like 10 minutes. And then he sat, we sat down he was like, how did you do this? And we told him about like, you know, what we value and how we work and what our kind of culture is here. And he was, you know, again, it's like, we really kind of see the world and the problems in the world in similar ways. And he always had an ambition of having an educational arm to WeWork. And when he met Adam and I and saw what we were doing, he felt like we were the right partner to kind of bring that aspect of life, of a lovable life, of an elevated life to the members, to the world, and to WeWork. Yeah. And how did that change things then, like for you and the company? Like, was it a big shock change right away? Or like, how did that change things? Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty amazing partnership. We get to operate really independently and we get a ton of support from WeWork and the WeWork members and the WeWork community teams. So really what has changed is our ability to kind of just grow and open up new campuses and leverage different kinds of partnerships. But uh, for the most part, it hasn't really like changed what we're doing. It just changes the speed at which and the scale at which we can do it. 
And there's a lot of really interesting kind of leverage points where, for instance, like now our online students all get WeWork memberships. So they can meet each other in WeWorks and go to study groups, not just online, but in person. And being having a place to learn from that isn't like a Starbucks or your apartment, it's a super important. And being able to kind of meet other local students in these WeWorks, being able to meet member companies, being able to go to meetups together, it really kind of creates this kind of global campus feel inside of a WeWork where we have our students meeting at study groups and they're going to a data science meetup, they're, you know, talking to member companies, they're engaging with the community. You know, again, I think like a lot of what is missing from the world is are kind of like these community spaces, these third spaces that people can interact with each other and meet each other. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things of looking through everything with your company, one of the missions, mission statement was to enable the pursuit of a better life through education. And I know you've done some things to make the Flatiron School is more accessible. What are some of those programs or initiatives you've done? Yeah, I mean, we care a lot about access and education. And I think a lot of people see access and education as, as being about money. And that is definitely true. And, you know, vehicles like ISAs, Skills Fund, financing, scholarships, partnerships with city governments, that definitely makes it accessible from a financial standpoint. But I think what makes education inaccessible that people don't really talk a lot about are things like pacing. So, you know, if you expect everyone to learn something in the exact same amount of time, you're basically drawing this correlation between speed to acquire knowledge and competency and knowledge once acquired, which is to say that if I can learn something in an hour and you learn it in 10 hours, by definition, because I learned it faster, I'm more competent than you. And that is just canonically false. The second you learn it, even if it takes you 10 hours, you're just as competent as I am. You know, even like in the bootcamp model with these 15-week programs or whatever time frame it is, that's going to make it inaccessible to people that just need more time. So with our online program, we're able to have a self-paced program. So if it takes you 12 months or 17 months, like who cares if it's going to change your life and you're going to be able to you know double your salary and have a career you actually care about, the speed at which you acquire that should not matter. So I think one thing we've done to make education more accessible beyond just the financial vehicles that we've introduced is just pacing and then format. You know, if it's full time, it's really hard to do that if you're a parent, if you have, have to have a job. So our part-time programs, are, I think, are making a format that's more accessible. Obviously, location, you know, having nine campuses and growing, having an online program means that wherever you live, this is now accessible to you. So I think those are the kinds of things that really help make education accessible to people. It's not just about financials. I even think like things like motivation, support, community, those are aspects I think are so often overlooked in the conversation about how do we make education more accessible to people? Everyone just makes it about money. How do we make it better and more affordable? You know, I think like another thing too, I think there's a lot of risk to it. It's hard to believe that you can actually change your life. And we introduced a job guarantee so that if you take the program and follow our terms of service in terms of what we expect from a job seeker and you graduate and you do all that for six months and you don't have a job, we'll give you your money back which basically mitigates all of the risk so that, you know, it's not as scary. And that's kind of like an emotional access, right? You need to make this basically something that people are willing to do. So those are kind of things we've really pioneered and thought a lot about in order to actually make this community, not just the people that could afford it or the people that can learn it in exactly this way, but rather a really diverse and vibrant set of people. Right. And as your company has grown, I'm curious as to what your role looks like today in the company. So you personally, how's that changed over time? Yeah. So um, right now I'm functioning as our chief product officer. So I run our technology team that builds our LMS Learn. 
you know, I still consult with the curriculum and academics department, with the culture at the school at WeWork. But uh, for the most part, I'm responsible for building out our technology so we can leverage it to scale effectively, to help students, you know, identify students that are struggling, build features that help people meet up in person, help create employer networks, things like that. Yeah. And with the company, like what is, obviously you're in, you're in multiple locations now because of WeWork and you have access to many more. Like what are the next steps and what is that grand vision for Fight Iron School? Yeah. I mean, I'm personally pretty excited about other vocations. I'm excited about information security, digital marketing, product management. I've been thinking a few this week a lot about kind of like what a grad school might look like. So like what is a, like an engineering management curriculum look like? Or what is like um, a staff engineer, or like a really advanced engineer curriculum look like? And then I guess the other thing I think a lot about is just, you know, right now we serve basically career changers. I wouldn't really recommend Flatiron School or any boot camp to an 18 to 20 year old. It's just not the right format. It's not the right content. And uh, that basically means that, you know, we're there for when college doesn't work for you, come to us and we'll kind of reset your career and your education. And what I really want to do is create some sort of program that is actually for 18 and 20 year olds and create an alternative to college, something that is canonically different. So not just like a better college or a different college, but something that just is not college. Any ideas what that would look like? Just curious. I guess the thing I think is the most important I don't know how college does it. It's probably, it's kind of like this limbo of like fake life. But so like, you're not a kid anymore, but you're also not a real person. And you do that for like enough time. And that basically like wakes you up to the fact that the world owes you nothing and you're going to have to figure everything out yourself. And that's like at a point, and then you basically mature and now things matter. I think it was Mark Twain that's education is wasted on the young. So I guess the first thing in this program is what you really want to do is accelerate maturity as, as quickly as possible, right? You got to get 18-year-olds to realize that life is long, it's difficult. It's not that it's not fair, it's that it doesn't care, it's ambivalent. And if you want to have a life that you love, it is up to you to make that. The earlier you realize that, the better you're going to be because then you take responsibility and agency over the choices you make and the direction you go in. So the program needs to be designed to have people, have students become aware of that as fast as possible. And after that, I think it's really about, you know, awakening their love of learning and giving them the confidence to know that they can learn anything they want. And uh, yeah, I mean, I do want it to be vocational in nature. So I think like if I just kind of spitballing, I would probably design it in these kind of year-long vocations. So you learn software engineering for an entire year. And as you're learning software engineering, you know, we kind of can mix in other topics like in programming abstraction is a huge concept how we abstract away information and you know encapsulate information and in the course in our boot camp we have this one lesson about abstraction and we talk about picasso and the study of a bull and what abstract art is so that's a nice metaphor you know abstraction isn't unique to programming it's a concept that's everywhere i would not want to spend 15 minutes on that for an 18 year old i don't want to spend a week on that like i want to report quests i want to talk about jackson pollock and picasso and kind of the movement from realism to abstract art and that way they also learn those things you know if we were teaching digital marketing i'd want to also teach like cognitive biases and psychology and you know what evocative writing is so i'd want to take these vocations and make them like a year long and really mix in a lot of other topics into the vocational study I really want the students to move around. Like, I don't like the idea of people being in one place during their formative years. Like, 
I grew up in New York and I loved New York and I knew I was going to live for my whole life, but I explicitly did not want to go to college anywhere even close to something resembling New York, like nothing on the East Coast, no private schools. Like, so I went to the University of Wisconsin because I wanted to see what the rest of the country was like. And when I met people in Wisconsin, because I lived in the state dorms and all my friends were, you know, from either Wisconsin or Minnesota. And, you know, they all grew up in Wisconsin. They went to school in Wisconsin. And sure enough, now they live in Wisconsin. And, you know, I think that when you live in one place your whole life, and especially that place doesn't necessarily have the best diversity, you really get this sense of like a fear of what's foreign and unknown. Um, and you think the world is so much both bigger and smaller at the same time. And the truth is that the world is a pretty small place and all people are mostly alike and they want the same things and there's no reason to be scared of them. And I think that if people moved around more and met other people from other cultures and saw what life was like for other people and realized that it's not that different and that they have the same values and they, you know, family, love, happiness, work ethic, like there's no culture in the world that doesn't value those kinds of things. But we, you know, we're so scared of what our immigrants are going to do and what if the person has a different religion. And so I really want in this program, if possible, to like, you know, you do four months in one city and then four months in another city and then four months in another city. So that by the time you graduate after two years, you know, you've learned two vocations and you've lived in, you know, eight to 10 places. Yeah. And yeah, it would be incredibly valuable. And I'm actually from Wisconsin. So I'll attest to the fact that people do, go Badgers. they stay, yeah, go Badgers, exactly. But they do tend to stay. People who are in Wisconsin or from Wisconsin tend to stay in Wisconsin. And so, you know, moving out for me to Vegas and then Los Angeles, it's like such a different thing where you experience people in different culture. But yeah, you see the similarity as well. But it, it is helpful to have that different perspective getting out of the place you're from, wherever that may be. And with your company, with Flatiron School, I'm curious as to like what you think makes you different from other coding boot camps. Obviously, you were like one of the OGs, like one of the first ones. But what makes you different from some of the other ones? Yeah, you know, I get that question a lot. I never know how to answer it. <laughs> I never went to any other schools, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think that it's all about values. Like we really value a growth mindset. We really love teaching people how to change. We want people to be passionate and really love what they're doing. We want them to engage with the community and be supportive of each other. Like it's not a competitive environment, it's a collaborative environment. And it's really about unlocking people's superpowers and giving them a sense of self and a sense of ability and a mindset that allows them to change. Because the most consistent thing in the world in history is, is everything is going to change. Everything is changing. And you need to learn how to change. And you know, I think that we teach whatever we're teaching, whether it's data science or design or coding, uh, what we're really teaching you is how to change through that experience, how to become a different person so that after you leave Flatiron, you can still grow and you can still change. Yeah, speaking of growth, actually, as you've grown this company, so what are the resources, whether it be books or podcasts or conferences or audiobooks, whatever, that have helped you this journey of entrepreneurship and growing Flatiron School? For Flatiron School, I think a lot. So Mindstorms by Paper was a really influential book in terms of education and uh, that kind of um, like awakened me to constructivism and like Piaget and sort of an educational philosophy that I really embrace. The Kip story, Work Hard, Be Nice was really influential for me. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Salman Khan's book, uh, One Room Schoolhouse was really um, influential. I mean, there's so many books that, uh, <laughs> that you know, influences that I think a lot about and I wouldn't know which uh, had a bring it down to one. I mean, I guess the, the most important thing are really just the people around me, Adam, everyone who works here, the other, all the teachers, all the students, they were a huge formative experience for me. And Christy, our COO, 
yeah, I guess those, those are really the people that kind of really uh, inspired me and kind of, you know, helped me think the way I do. Yeah. And one of the things I always had to ask guests is like, how do you manage your time and your energy day to day and kind of figure out what you should be working on and what you should be doing? I'm always curious about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, this is a constant process. You know, I look at my calendar and I wonder, is this useful? Is this the best thing I could be doing? Am I uniquely capable of doing it? I think as a company grows, you know, once you're beyond, let's say 50 people, what you have to get good at is you have to delegate to the point of discomfort. Like take the most important thing that you think you should be doing and delegate it. And it's really scary. I try to do that. I think I actually have probably a lot of work to do in that. But uh, yeah, in terms of managing my time, it's really just kind of like every you know day, every week, really just kind of looking at what I'm doing and really vetting it and saying like, okay, is this worth doing? Do I need to be doing this? Can someone else do it? Is it important? Do I love doing it? Um, am I uniquely capable of doing it? I think like one thing I think I do, I don't know if other entrepreneurs do this, but I just take a ridiculous amount of notes so I'm just constantly writing things down. I process my notes. So I like, you know, at the end of the day, in the beginning of the day, I'm looking at like, okay, what did I write down yesterday? What am I organizing? And it's constantly this like grooming exercise of like, what's in your brain? What are you focused on? You know, I think if you're not like making a very conscious decision about what you choose to care about, you're going to get lost. I'm very like discriminate about like what is going in my head. <laughs> like I only want thinking about and around things that I care about. Yeah. And one of the last things that I'm curious about with Flatiron School and everything you've done, uh, obviously a tremendous amount of experience. Someone, If someone's thinking about switching careers, thinking about maybe programming, like what are some things you would tell them to do initially, maybe to even figure out if this is going to be right for them? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, start playing. You know, I think Code Academy is really great to kind of get your feet wet and see what programming feels like. Don't like stress the languages. Like, you know, you're going to get a lot of articles about here's why you should learn JavaScript. Here's why you should learn Python. Here's why you should learn Ruby. It doesn't really matter. Just pick one. Don't change it. Don't worry about whether or not what you're learning right now is like what you should be learning. If you want to be a web developer and you start learning basic like variable assignments or you're learning about arrays or hashes or you're learning about objects and you're like, well, this isn't web programming, don't worry about that. You got to get the building blocks and the foundations down. And get like just like programming is hard because it's like there's no margin of error. Like everything needs to be perfect. You know, you miss a comma, you miss a parenthesis, and like the whole thing breaks. Frustrating, and that's an attention to detail most people aren't used to. You just want to get experience with that. You want to get experience with things being broken and it not being your fault. So I think the more time you spend programming in the beginning, the better. It doesn't matter what it is. You're just getting. You're kind of like getting the meta skill of coding, like how to, you know, format your code correctly, pay attention to detail, read error messages. And then you'll start learning the actual mechanics that allow you to be a software engineer or a web developer or a mobile developer. Yeah, I mean, I think like read a lot of code. I think read books too. I don't know when people stopped reading programming books, but I think they're awesome. Just read them cover to cover. Don't necessarily follow the exercises, but like it's just about exposure. Like you got to expose your mind to everything that's there. And you'll find that like, as you actually start, like, trying to do something, you'll remember, like, oh, I remember that chapter in a book. You know, it's hard to remember that blog post you read when you weren't ready for it that kind of mentioned something that you think is now relevant. But if you have a book and you read it, like, two or three times, it will cover everything you need to know. And then when you're actually, like, learning and trying to do, like, go deep in something or you're doing a tutorial or you're doing Code Academy or trying to build something, it's the chapter in that book that's what you're going to remember. And you're going to be able to find it because you have it. Yeah. And obviously there's advice for people trying to get into code, but also I'm curious as what you would tell people, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs trying to start something. What would you tell them? 
I guess the first thing I would tell them is to make sure they love what they're starting. Doing something yourself is it's going to be very, very difficult and challenging. So make sure you actually love it. Surround yourself with people smarter than you that also love what you're doing and love what you're building. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard. I would say that if you can be happy doing anything else, you should <laughs> do something else. It's really a craft, like starting companies, being an entrepreneur, it takes experience and you're not going to be graded at first and that's okay. But you have to understand like that no one was born like good at this. It's they've tried it a hundred times and they get good at it. Like I must have tried to start seven companies before my first one actually took off. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's also exposure to like a lot of skill sets. Like I think entrepreneurs are like experts in one thing and decent at many, many, many things. Like you got to get good at marketing. You got to understand what product market fit is and like actually build stuff. Like don't be that person that's like constantly talking about like, I'm going to raise money or I'm going to these like, you know, meetups and startups. Like actually try to like, even if it's silly, like get customers, even if it's like a hundred customers for like, I'm giving 15 minute tax advice and it's $1. See if you can get a hundred people to do that. Like if you can't get people, if you can't create value for people, you don't deserve to extract any value for them. So you want to understand what product market fit is, what like a customer is, what value creation even means for people and practice that like in every way you can. Yeah. And the only last thing I'm kind of curious about is, is there anything you would change looking back on building Flatiron School? Is there anything particular you would change or no? I mean, I guess I always wish we move faster. I still do. <laughs> like, I'm like terrified of the pace we're moving. I just always want to move faster. No, I can't think of anything like off the top of my head I would change. I mean, personally, I wish I had taken more time off in my life. Like I'm pretty tired. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I also think about the experience you needed to learn all these different things and you figured it out along the way. So it's like, it is hard to answer potentially what things you may have done differently. But Avi, I really appreciate the time today. Where can people go to learn more about what you're doing in Flatiron School? Flatironschool.com. I'm on Twitter at Avi Flumbaum. Feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. I really love talking to people about this kind of stuff. So I'm very approachable. I promise I'll respond. Twitter is probably the best way to get a hold of me. And then for Flatiron School, flatironschool.com. Awesome. Avi, thank you so much, man. Thanks so much, Justin. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. As always, the show notes are over at justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show over at patreon.com slash justgogrind. And please, please leave a rating and review over on iTunes. It does help more people find the show. Hope you enjoy this episode. Have a great day.